This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Temple Trouble by H. Beam Piper. Part 1 Through a haze of incense and altar smoke, Yat Zar looked down from his golden throne at the end of the dusky, many-pillared temple. Yat Zar was an idol, of gigantic size and extraordinarily good workmanship. He had three eyes, made of turquoises as big as doorknobs, and six arms. In his three right hands, from top to bottom, he held a sword with a flame-shaped blade, a jeweled object of vaguely phallic appearance, and, by the ears, a rabbit. In his left hands were a bronze torch with burnished copper flames, a big goblet, and a pair of scales with an egg in one pan balanced against a skull in the other. He had a long bifurcate beard made of gold wire, feet like a bird's, and other rather startling anatomical features. His throne was set upon a stone plinth about twenty feet high, into the front of which a doorway opened. Behind him was a wooden screen, elaborately gilded and painted. Directly in front of the idol, Gullum the high priest knelt on a big blue and gold cushion. He wore a gold-fringed robe of dark blue, and a tall conical mitre, and a bright blue false beard, forked like the idol's golden one. He was intoning a prayer, and holding up in both hands, for divine inspection and approval, a long curved knife. Behind him, about thirty feet away, stood a square stone altar, around which four of the lesser priests, in light blue robes with less gold fringe and dark blue false beards, were busy with the preliminaries to the sacrifice. At considerable distance, about halfway down the length of the temple, some two hundred worshippers, a few substantial citizens in gold-fringed tunics, artisans in tunics without gold fringe, soldiers in male hauberks and plain steel caps, one officer in ornately gilded armor, a number of peasants in nondescript smocks, and women of all classes, were beginning to prostrate themselves on the stone floor. Gullum rose to his feet, bowing deeply to Yatzar, and holding the knife extended in front of him, and backed away toward the altar. As he did, one of the lesser priests reached into a fringed and embroidered sack and pulled out a live rabbit, a big one, obviously of domestic breed, holding it by the ears, while one of his fellows took it by the hind legs. A third priest caught up a silver pitcher, while the fourth fanned the altar fire with a sheet-silver fan. As they began chanting antiphonally, Gullum turned and quickly whipped the edge of his knife across the rabbit's throat. The priest with the pitcher stepped in to catch the blood, and when the rabbit was bled it was laid on the fire. Gullum and his four assistants all shouted together, and the congregation shouted in response. The high priest waited as long as was decently necessary, and then, 
holding the knife in front of him, stepped around the prayer cushion and went through the door under the idol into the Holy of Holies. A boy in novice's white robes met him and took the knife, carrying it reverently to a fountain for washing. Eight or ten under-priests, sitting at a long table, rose and bowed, then sat down again and resumed their eating and drinking. At another table a half-dozen upper-priests nodded to him in casual greeting. Crossing the room, Gullum went to the triple veil in front of the house of Yat-Zar, where only the highest of the priesthood might go, and parted the curtains, passing through until he came to the great gilded door. Here he fumbled under his robe and produced a small object, like a mechanical pencil, inserting the pointed end in a tiny hole in the door and pressing on the other end. The door opened, then swung shut behind him, and as it locked itself, the lights came on within. Gullum removed his mitre and his false beard, tossing them aside on a table, then undid his sash and peeled out of his robe. His regalia discarded, he stood for a moment in loose trousers and a soft white shirt, with a pistol-like weapon in a shoulder holster under his left arm. No longer Gullum the High Priest of Yat-Zar, but now Stranor Sleth, resident agent on this timeline of the fourth-level Proto-Aryan Sector for the Transtemporal Mining Corporation. Then he opened a door at the other side of the anteroom and went to the anti-grav shaft, stepping over the edge and floating downward. There were temples of Yat-Zar on every timeline of the Proto-Aryan sector, for the worship of Yat-Zar was ancient among the Hulgun people of that area of Paratime. But there were only a few which had such installations as this, and all of them were owned and operated by Transtemporal Mining, which had the Fissionable Ores franchise for this sector. During the ten elapsed centuries since Transtemporal had begun operations on this sector, the process had become standardized. A few first-level paratimers would transpose to a selected timeline and abduct an upper priest of Yat-Zar, preferably the high priest of the temple at Yoldav or Zurb. He would be drugged and transposed to the first level, where he would receive hypnotic indoctrination and, while unconscious, have an operation performed on his ears which would enable him to hear sounds well above the normal audible range. He would be able to hear the shrill sonar cries of bats, for instance, and, more important, he would be able to hear voices when the speaker used a first-level audio-frequency step-up phone. He would also receive a memory obliteration from the moment of his abduction, and a set of pseudo-memories of a visit to the heaven of Yat-Zar on the other side of the sky. Then he would be returned to his own timeline and left on a mountaintop far from his temple, where an unknown peasant, leading a donkey, would always find him, return him to the temple, and then vanish inexplicably. Then the priest would begin hearing voices, usually while serving at the altar. They would warn of future events, which would always come to pass exactly as foretold. Or they might bring tidings of things happening at a distance, the news of which would not arrive by normal means for days or even weeks. Before long the holy man who had been carried alive to the heaven of Yat-Zar 
would acquire a most awesome reputation as a prophet, and would speedily rise to the very top of the priestly hierarchy. Then he would receive two commandments from Yat-Zar. The first would ordain that all lower priests must travel about from temple to temple, never staying longer than a year at any one place. This would ensure a steady influx of newcomers personally unknown to the local upper-priests, and many of them would be first-level paratimers. Then there would be a second commandment. A house must be built for Yat-Zar, against the rear wall of each temple. Its dimensions were minutely stipulated. Its walls were to be of stone, without windows, and there was to be a single door opening into the Holy of Holies, and before the walls were finished, the door was to be barred from within. A triple veil of brocaded fabric was to be hung in front of this door. Sometimes such innovations met with opposition from the more conservative members of the hierarchy. When they did, the principal objector would be seized with a sudden and violent illness. He would recover if and when he withdrew his objections. Very shortly after the house of Yat-Zar would be completed, strange noises would be heard from behind the thick walls. Then, after a while, one of the younger priests would announce that he had been commanded in a vision to go behind the veil and knock upon the door. Going behind the curtains, he would use his door activator to let himself in, and return by paratime conveyor to the first level to enjoy a well-earned vacation. When the high priest would follow him behind the veil, after a few hours, and find that he had vanished, it would be announced as a miracle. A week later, an even greater miracle would be announced. The young priest would be returned from behind the triple veil, clad in such raiment as no man had ever seen, and bearing in his hands a strange box. He would announce that Yat-Zar had commanded him to build a new temple in the mountains, at a place to be known by the voice of the god speaking out of the box. This time there would be no doubts and no objections. A procession would set out, headed by the new revelator bearing the box, and when the clicking voice of the god spoke rapidly out of it, the site would be marked and the work would begin. No local labor would ever be employed on such temples. The masons and woodworkers would be strangers, coming from afar and speaking a strange tongue. And when the temple was completed, they would never be seen to leave it. Men would say that they had been put to death by the priest, and buried under the altar to preserve the secrets of the god. And there would always be an idol to preserve the secrets of the god. And there would always be an idol of Yat-Zar, obviously of heavenly origin, since its workmanship was beyond the powers of any local craftsman. The priests of such a temple would be exempt, by divine decree, from the rule of yearly travel. Nobody, of course, would have the least idea that there was a uranium mine in operation under it, shipping ore to another timeline. The Hulgan people knew nothing about uranium and neither did they as much as dream that there were other timelines. The secret of paratime transposition belonged exclusively to the first-level civilization which had discovered it, and it was a secret that was guarded well. 
Stranor Sleth, dropping to the bottom of the anti-grav shaft, cast a hasty and instinctive glance to the right, where the freight conveyors were. One was gone, taking its cargo over hundreds of thousands of para-years to the first level. Another had just returned, empty, and a third was receiving its cargo from the robot mining machines far back under the mountain. Two young men and a girl, in first-level costumes, sat at a bank of instruments and visor-screens, handling the whole operation, and six or seven armed guards, having inspected the newly-arrived conveyor and finding that it had picked up nothing inimical en route, were relaxing and lighting cigarettes. Three of them, Stranor Sleth noticed, wore the green uniforms of the Paratime Police. "'When did those fellows get in?' he asked the people at the control desk, nodding toward the green-clad newcomers. "'About ten minutes ago, on the passenger conveyor,' the girl told him. "'The big boy's here, Branad Clav, and a Paratime Police officer. They're in your office.' "'Uh-huh. I was expecting that,' Stranor Sleth nodded. Then he turned down the corridor to the left. Two men were waiting for him in his office. One was short and stocky, with an angry, impatient face, Brannard Clav, Transtemporal's vice-president in charge of operations. The other was tall and slender, with handsome and entirely expressionless features. He wore a paratime police officer's uniform, with the blue badge of hereditary nobility on his breast, and carried a sigma-ray needler in a belt holster. "'Were you waiting long, gentlemen?' Stranor Sleth asked. "'I was holding a sunset sacrifice up in the temple.' "'No, we just got here,' Branad Clav said. "'This is Verkan Vall, Mavrat of Neros, special assistant to Chief Tortha of the Paratime Police. Stranor Sleth, our resident agent here.' Stranor Sleth touched hands with Verkan Vall. "'I've heard a lot about you, sir,' he said. "'Everybody working in Paratime has, of course. I'm sorry we have a situation here that calls for your presence, but since we have, I'm glad you're here in person. You know what our trouble is, I suppose?' "'In a general way,' Verkan Vall replied. "'Chief Tortha and Branad Clav have given me the main outline,' but I'd like to have you fill in the details." "'Well, I told you everything,' Brennan Clav interrupted impatiently. "'It's just that Stranor's let this blasted local king, Kerchuk, get out of control. If I—' He stopped short, catching sight of the shoulder holster under Stranor Sleth's left arm. "'Were you wearing that needler up in the temple?' he demanded. "'You're blasted right I was,' Stranor Sleth retorted and any time I can't arm myself for my own protection on this timeline, you can have my resignation. I'm not getting into the same jam as those people at Zurb." "'Well, never mind about that,' Verkan Vall intervened. "'Of course, Stranor Sleth has a right to arm himself. I wouldn't think of being caught without a weapon on this timeline myself. Now, Stranor, suppose you tell me what's been happening here, from the beginning of this trouble.' It started, really, about five years ago, when Kerchuk, the king of Zurb, married this Chuldun princess, Dareth, from the country over beyond the Black Sea, and made her his queen over the heads of about a dozen daughters of the local nobility, whom he'd married previously. Then he brought in this Chuldun scribe, 
Labdurg, and made him overseer of the kingdom, roughly prime minister. There was a lot of dissatisfaction about that, and for a while it looked as though he was going to have a revolution on his hands. But he brought in about five thousand Chuldun mercenaries, all archers, these Hulgans can't shoot a bow worth beans, so the dissatisfaction died down, and so did most of the leaders of the disaffected group. The story I get is that this Labdurg arranged the marriage in the first place. It looks to me as though the Chuldun emperor is intending to take over the Hulgan kingdoms, starting with Zurb. Well, these Chuldans all worship a god called Muz-Azin. Muz-Azin is a crocodile with wings like a bat and a lot of knife-blades in his tail. He makes this Yat-Zar look downright beautiful. So do his habits. Muz-Azin fancies human sacrifices. The victims are strung up by the ankles on a triangular frame and lashed to death with iron-barbed whips. Nasty sort of deity, but this is a nasty timeline. The people here get a big kick out of watching these sacrifices. Much better show than our bunny-killing. The victims are usually criminals or overage or incorrigible slaves or prisoners of war. Of course, when the Chuldans began infiltrating the palace, they brought in their crocodile god, too, and a flock of priests, and King Kerchuk let them set up a temple in the palace. Naturally, we preached against this heathen idolatry in our temples, but religious bigotry isn't one of the numerous imperfections of this sector. Everybody's deity is as good as anybody else's. Indifferentism, I believe, is the theological term. Anyhow, on that basis things went along fairly well till two years ago when we had this run of bad luck. "'Bad luck!' Branad Clav snorted. "'That's the standing excuse of every incompetent!' "'Go on, Stranor, what sort of bad luck?' Verkan Vall asked. "'Well, first we had a drought, beginning in early summer that burned up most of the grain crop. Then, when that broke, we got heavy rains and hailstorms and floods, and that destroyed what got through the dry spell. When they harvested what little was left, it was obvious there'd be a famine, so we brought in a lot of grain by conveyor and distributed it from the temples. Miraculous gift of Yatsar, of course. Then the main office on first level got scared about flooding this timeline with a lot of unaccountable grain, and were afraid we'd make the people suspicious, and ordered it stopped. Then Kerchuk and I might add that the kingdom of Zurb was the hardest hit by the famine, ordered his army mobilize and started an invasion of the Jumdun country, south of the Carpathians, to get grain. He got his army chopped up, and only about a quarter of them got back with no grain. You ask me, I'd say that Labdurg framed it to happen that way. He advised Kerchuk to invade in the first place, and I mentioned my suspicion that Chambrog, the Chuldun emperor, is planning to move in on the Hulgan kingdoms. Well, what would be smarter than to get Kerchuk's army smashed in advance? How did the defeat occur? Verkenval asked. Any suspicion of treachery? Nothing you could put your finger on, except that the Jumduns seem to have pretty good intelligence about Kerchuk's invasion route and battle plans. It could have been nothing worse than stupid tactics on Kerchuk's part. See, these Hulgans, 
and particularly the Zerbhogans, are spearmen. They fight in a fairly thin line, with heavy-armed infantry in front and light infantry with throwing spears behind. The nobles fight in light chariots, usually at the center of the line. And that's where they were at this Battle of Jorm. Kerchuk himself was at the center, with his Chuldun archers massed around him. The Jumduns use a lot of cavalry, with long swords and lances, and a lot of big chariots with two javelin men and a driver. Well, instead of ramming into Kerchuk's center, where he had his archers, they hit the extreme left and folded it up, and then swung around behind and hit the right from the rear. All the Chuldun archers did was stand fast around the king and shoot anybody who came close to them. They were left pretty much alone. But the Hogan spearmen were cut to pieces. The battle ended with Kerchuk and his nobles and his archers making a fighting retreat, while the Jumdun cavalry were chasing the spearmen every which way and cutting them down or lancing them as they ran. Well, whether it was Labdorg's treachery or Kerchuk's stupidity, in either case it was natural for the archers to come off easiest and the Hulgan spearmen to pay the butcher's bill. But try and tell these knuckleheads anything like that. Muzazin protected the Chuldans, and Yat-Zar let the Hulgans down, and that was all there was to it. The Zerb temple started losing worshippers, particularly the families of the men who didn't make it back from Jorm. If that had been all there been to it, though, it still wouldn't have hurt the mining operations, and we could have got by. But what really tore it was when the rabbits started to die. Stranor Sleth picked up a cigar from his desk and bit the end, spitting it out disgustedly. Tularemia, of course, he said, touching his lighter to the tip. When that hit, they started going over to Muzazin in droves, not only at Zerb, but all over the Six Kingdoms. You ought to have seen the house we had for sunset service this evening, about two hundred, and we used to get two thousand. It used to be all two men could do to lift the offering box at the door afterward, and all the money we took in tonight I could put in one pocket. The high priest used language that would have been considered unclerical even among the Hulgans. Verkan Vall nodded. Even without the quickie hypnomach he had taken for this sector, he knew that the rabbit was domesticated among the proto-Aryan Hulgans and was their chief meat animal. Hulgan rabbits were even a minor import on the first level, and could be had at all the better restaurants in cities like Durgabar. He mentioned that. That's not the worst of it, Stranor Sleth told him. See, the rabbit's sacred to Yatsar. Not taboo, just sacred. They have to use a specially consecrated knife to kill them. Consecrating rabbit knives has always been an item of temple revenue, and they must say a special prayer before eating them. We could have got around the rest of it, even the Battle of Jorm, punishment by Yatzar for the sin of apostasy, but Yatzar just wouldn't make rabbits sick. Yatzar thinks too well of rabbits to do that, and it had not been any use claiming he would. So there you are. Well, I take the attitude that this situation is the result of your incompetence, Brannad Clav began, in a bully-ragging tone. You're not only the high priest of this temple, you're the acknowledged head of the religion in all the Hulgan kingdoms. You should have had more hold on the people than to allow anything like this to happen. 
"'Hold on the people!' Stranor Sleth fairly howled, appealing to Verk and Vol. "'What does he think a religion is, on this sector, anyhow? You think these savages dreamed up that six-armed monstrosity up there to express their yearning for higher things, or to symbolize their moral ethos, or as a philosophical escape-hatch from the dilemma of causation? They never even heard of such matters. On this sector, gods are strictly utilitarian. As long as they take care of their worshippers, they get their sacrifices. When they can't put out, they have to get out. How do you suppose these Chuldans, living in the Caucasus Mountains, got the idea of a god like a crocodile, anyhow? Why, they got it from Homran traders, people from down in the Nile Valley. They had a god once, something basically like a billy-goat, but he let them get licked in a couple of battles, so out he went. Why, all the deities on this sector have hyphenated names, because they are combinations of several deities, worshipped in one person. "'Do you know anything about the history of this sector?' he asked the Paratime police officer. "'Well, it develops from an alternate probability of what we call the Nilo-Mesopotamian basic sector group,' Verkan Vall said. "'On most Nilo-Mesopotamian sectors, like the Macedonian Empire sector, or the Alexandrian Roman, or Alexandrian Punic, or Indo-Turanian or Europo-American, there was an Aryan invasion of Eastern Europe and Asia Minor, about four thousand elapsed years ago. On this sector, the ancestors of the Aryans came in about fifteen centuries earlier, as Neolithic savages, about the time that the Sumerian and Egyptian civilizations were first developing, and overran all Southeast Europe, Asia Minor, and the Nile Valley. They developed to the Bronze Age culture of the civilizations they overthrew, and then, more slowly, to an Iron Age culture. About two thousand years ago, they were using hardened steel and building large stone cities, just as they do now. At that time, they reached cultural stasis. But, as for their religious beliefs, you've described them quite accurately. A god is only worshipped as long as the people think him powerful enough to aid and protect them. When they lose that confidence, he is discarded, and the god of some neighboring people is adopted instead." He turned to Branad Clav. "'Didn't Strano report this situation to you when it first developed?' he asked. "'I know he did. He speaks of receiving shipments of grain by conveyor for temple distribution. Then why didn't you report it to Paratime Police? That's what we have a Paratime Police Force for.' "'Well, yes, of course but I had enough confidence in Stranor Sleth to think that he could handle the situation himself. I didn't know he'd gone slack. "'Look, I can't make weather, even if my parishioners think I can,' Stranor Sleth defended himself. "'And I can't make a great military genius out of a blockhead like Kerchuk. And I can't immunize all the rabbits on this timeline against tularemia, even if I'd had any reason to expect a tularemia epidemic.' which I hadn't, because the disease is unknown on this sector. This is the only outbreak of it anybody's ever heard of on any proto-Aryan timeline. No, but I'll tell you what you could have done, Verkan Vall told him. When this Kerchuk started to apostatize, you could have gone to him at the head of a procession of priests, all paratimers, and all armed with energy weapons, and pointed out his spiritual duty to him, and if he gave you any back-talk, 
You could have pulled out that needler and rayed him down, and then cried, Behold the vengeance of Yat-Zar upon the wicked king! I'll bet any sum at any odds that his successor would have thought twice about going over to Muzazin, and none of these other kings would have even thought once about it. Ha! That's what I wanted to do! Stranor Sleth exclaimed. And who stopped me? I'll give you just one guess. Well, it seems there was slackness here, but it wasn't Stranor Sleth who was slack, Verkan Vall commented. Well, I must say, I've never thought I'd hear an officer of the Paratime Police criticizing me for trying to operate inside the Paratime Transposition Code, Branad Clav exclaimed. Verkan Vall, sitting on the edge of Stranor Sleth's desk, aimed his cigarette at Branad Clav like a blaster. Now look, he began, there is one, and only one, inflexible law regarding out-time activities. The secret of paratime transposition must be kept inviolate, and any activity tending to endanger it is prohibited. That's why we don't allow the transposition of any object of extraterrestrial origin to any timeline on which space travel has not been developed. Such an object may be preserved, and then, after the local population begin exploring the planet from whence it came, there will be dangerous speculations and theories as to how it arrived on Terra at such an early date. I came within inches, literally, of getting myself killed not long ago, cleaning up the result of a violation of that regulation. For the same reason, we don't allow the export, to outtime natives, of manufactured goods too far in advance of their local culture. That's why, for instance, you people have to hand-finish all those big Yat-Zar idols, to remove traces of machine-work. One of those things may be around a few thousand years from now, when these people develop a mechanical civilization. But as far as raying down this Kerchuk is concerned, these Hulgans are completely non-scientific. They wouldn't have the least idea what happened. They'd believe that Yat-Zar struck him dead, as gods on this plane of culture are supposed to do. And if any of them noticed the needler at all, they'd think it was just a holy amulet of some kind. But the law is the law, Branad Clav began. Verkan Vall shook his head. Branad, as I understand, you were promoted to your present position on the retirement of Salvan Marth, about ten years ago. Up to that time, you were in your company's financial department. You were accustomed to working subject to the first-level commercial regulations code. Now, any law binding upon our people at home, on the first level, is inflexible. It has to be. We found out, over fifty centuries ago, that laws have to be rigid and without discretionary powers in administration in order that people may be able to predict their effect and plan their activities accordingly. Naturally, you became conditioned to operating in such a climate of legal inflexibility. But in Paratime, the situation is entirely different. There exists, within the range of the Galdron Hestor paratemporal field generator, a number of timelines of the order of ten to the hundred thousandth power. In effect, that many different worlds. In the past ten thousand years, we have visited only the tiniest fraction of these but we have found everything from timelines inhabited only by subhuman ape-men 
to second-level civilizations which are our own equal in every respect but knowledge of paratemporal transposition. We even know of one second-level civilization which is approaching the discovery of an interstellar hyperspatial drive, something we've never even come close to. And in between are every degree of savagery, barbarism, and civilization. Now it's just not possible to frame any single code of laws applicable to conditions on all of these. The best we can do is prohibit certain flagrantly immoral types of activity, such as slave-trading, introduction of new types of narcotic drugs, or out-and-out -out piracy and brigandage. If you are in doubt as to the legality of anything you want to do out-time, go to the judicial section of the Paratime Commission and get an opinion on it. That's where you made your whole mistake. You didn't find out just how far it was allowable for you to go." He turned to Stranor Sleth again. "'Well, that's the background, then. Now tell me about what happened yesterday at Zurb. Well, a week ago Kerchuk came out with this decree closing our temple at Zurb, and ordering his subjects to perform worship and make money offerings to Muzazin. The Zurb temple isn't a mask for a mine. Zerb's too far south for the uranium deposits. It's just a center for propaganda and that sort of thing. But they have a house of Yat-Zar, and a conveyor, and most of the upper priests are paratimers. Well, our man there, Temandrav, alias Koram, defied the king's order, so Kerchuk sent a company of Chuldan archers to close the temple and arrest the priests. Tamandrav got all his people who were in the temple at the time into the house of Yat-Zar and transposed them back to the first level. He had orders, Stranor Sleth looked meaningly at Branad Clav, not to resist with energy weapons or even ultrasonic paralyzers. And while we're on the subject of letting the local yokels see too much, about fifteen of the underpriests he took to the first level were Hulgan natives. Nothing wrong about that. They'll get memory obliteration and pseudo-memory treatment, Verkan Vall said. But he should have been allowed to needle about a dozen of those Chuldans. Teach the beggars to respect Yat-Zar in the future. Now how about the six priests who were outside the temple at the time? All but one were paratimers. We'll have to find out about them and get them out of Zurb. That'll take some doing, Stranor Sleth said and it'll have to be done before sunset tomorrow. They are all in the dungeon of the palace citadel, and Kerchak is going to give them to the priests of Muzazin to be sacrificed tomorrow evening. "'How'd you learn that?' Verkenval asked. "'Oh, we have a man in Zurb, not connected with the temple,' Stranor Sleth said. "'Name's Cranar Jurth, calls himself Cranjur, locally. He has a sword-maker's shop, employs about a dozen native journeymen and apprentices who hammer out the common blades he sells in the open market. Then he imports a few high-class alloy steel blades from the first level that'll cut through this local low-carbon armor like cheese, fits them with locally made hilts, and sells them at unbelievable prices to the nobility. He's swordsmith to the king, picks up all the inside palace dope. Of course, he was among the first to accept the new gospel and go over to Muzazin. He has a secret room under his shop, with his conveyor and a radio. What happened was this. These six priests were at a consecration ceremony at a rabbit ranch outside the city, 
and they didn't know about the raid on the temple. On their way back, they were surrounded by Chuldun archers and taken prisoner. They had no weapons but their sacrificial knives. He threw another dirty look at Branad Clav. So they're due to go up on the triangles at sunset tomorrow. We'll have to get them out before then, Verkenval stated. They're our people, and we can't let them down. Even the native is under our protection, whether he knows it or not. And in the second place, if those priests are sacrificed to Muzazin, he told Branad Clav, you can shut down everything on this timeline, pull out or disintegrate your installations, and fill in your mine tunnels. Yatzar will be through on this timeline, and you'll be through along with him. And considering that you are Fishnable's franchise for this sector comes up for renewal next year, your company will be through in this paratime area. You believe that would happen? Branad Clav asked anxiously. I know it will, because I'll put through a recommendation to that effect if those six men are tortured to death tomorrow, Verkenval replied. And in the fifty years that I've been in the police department, I've only heard of five such recommendations being ignored by the Commission. You know, Fourth Level Mineral Products Syndicate is after your franchise. Ordinarily, they wouldn't have a chance of getting it, but with this, maybe they will, even without my recommendation. This was all your fault, for ignoring Stranor Streth's proposal and for denying those men the right to carry energy weapons. "'Well, we were only trying to stay inside the Paratime Code,' Brennan Clav pleaded. "'If it isn't too late now, you can count on me for every cooperation.' He fiddled with some papers on the desk. "'What do you want me to do to help?' "'I'll tell you that in a minute.' Verkenval walked to the wall and looked at the map, then returned to Stranor Sleth's desk. "'How about these dungeons?' he asked. "'How are they located, and how can we get into them?' "'I'm afraid we can't,' Stranor Sleth told him. "'Not without fighting our way in. "'They're under a palace citadel, a hundred feet below ground. "'They're spatially coexistent with the heavy water barriers "'around one of our company's plutonium piles on the first level.' and below surface on any unoccupied timeline I know of, so we can't transpose into them. This palace is really a walled city inside a city. Here, I'll show you. Going around the desk, he sat down and, after looking in the index screen, punched a combination on the keyboard. A picture, projected from the microfilm bank, appeared on the view screen. It was an air view of the city of Zurb, taken, the high priest explained, by infrared light from an airboat over the city at night. It showed a city of an entirely pre-mechanical civilization, with narrow streets lined on either side by low one- and two-story buildings. Although there would be considerable snow in winter, the roofs were usually flat, probably massive stone slabs supported by pillars within. Even in the poorer sections, this was true except for the very meanest houses and outbuildings, which were thatched. Here and there, some huge pile of masonry would rear itself above its lower neighbors, and, where the streets were wider, occasional groups of large buildings would be surrounded by battlemented walls. Stranor Sleth indicated one of the larger of these. "'Here's the palace,' he said, 
and here's the temple of Yadzar, about a half-mile away." He touched a large building, occupying an entire block. Between it and the palace was a block-wide park, with lawns and trees on either side of a wide roadway connecting the two. Now here's a detailed view of the palace. He punched another combination. The view of the city was replaced by one taken from directly overhead of the walled palace area. Here's the main gate, in front, at the end of the road from the temple, he pointed out. Over here on the left are the slaves' quarters, and the stables and workshops and storehouses and so on. Over here, on the other side, are the nobles' quarters, and this, he indicated a towering structure at the rear of the walled enclosure, is the citadel and the royal dwelling. Audience hall on this side, harem over here on this side. A wide stone platform, about fifteen feet high, runs completely across the front of the citadel, from the audience hall to the harem. Since this picture was taken, the new temple of Mazazin was built right about here. He indicated that it extended out from the audience hall into the central courtyard. And out here on the platform they've put up about a dozen of these triangles, about twelve feet high, on which the sacrificial victims are whipped to death. Yes, about the only way we could get down to the dungeons would be to make an airdrop onto the citadel roof and fight our way down with needlers and blasters. And I'm not willing to do that as long as there's another way, Verkan Vall said. We'd lose men, even with needlers against bows, and there's a chance that some of our equipment might be lost in the melee and fall into out-time hands. You say this sacrifice comes off at tomorrow at sunset? That would be about actual sunset, plus or minus an hour. These people aren't astronomers. They don't even have good sundials, and it might be a cloudy day, Stranor Sleth said. There'll be a big idol of Muzzazine on a cart, set about here, he pointed. After the sacrifice it has to be dragged down this road, outside, to the temple of Yatzar and set up there. The temple is now occupied by about twenty Chuldun mercenaries and five or six priests of Muzazin. They haven't, of course, got into the house of Yatzar. The door is of impervium steel, about six inches thick, with a plating of collapsed nickel under the gilding. It would take a couple of hours to cut through it with our best atomic torch. There isn't a tool on this timeline that could even scratch it. And the insides of the walls are lined with the same thing. Do you think our people have been tortured yet? Verkan Vall asked. No, Stranor Sleth was positive. They'll be fairly well treated until the sacrifice. The idea is to make them last as long as possible on the triangles. Muzzazine likes to see a slow killing, and so does the mob of spectators. That's good. Now, here's my plan. We won't try to rescue them from the dungeons. Instead, we'll transpose back to the Zerb temple from the first level, in considerable force, say a hundred or so men, and march on the palace to force their release. You're in constant radio communication with all the other temples on this timeline, I suppose? Yes, certainly. All right. Pass this out to everybody. Authority, Paratime Police, in my name, acting for Tortha Karf. I want all paratimers who can possibly be spared to transpose to first level immediately and rendezvous at the first level terminal of the Zerb Temple conveyor as soon as possible. 
close down all mining operations, and turn over temple routine to the native underpriests. You can tell them that the upper priests are retiring to their respective houses of Yatzar to pray for the deliverance of the priests in the hands of King Kerchuk. And everybody is to bring back his priestly regalia to the first level. That will be needed. He turned to Bernard Clave. I suppose you keep spare regalia and stock on the first level? Yes, of course. We keep plenty of everything in stock. Robes, miters, false beards of different shades, everything. And these big Yat-Zar idols, they're mass-produced on the first level? You have one available now? Good. I'll want some alterations made on one. For one thing, I'll want it plated heavily, all over, with collapsed nickel. For another, I'll want it fitted with anti-grav units, and some sort of propulsion units, and a loudspeaker, and a remote control. And Stranor, you get in touch with this sword-maker, Cranor Jurth, and alert him to cooperate with us. Tell him to start calling Zerb Temple on his radio about noon tomorrow, and keep it up till he gets an answer. Or better, tell him to run his conveyor to his first-level terminal, and bring with him an extra suit of clothes appropriate to the role of journeyman mechanic. I'll want to talk to him, and furnish him with special equipment. Got all that? Well, carry on with it, and bring your own paratimers, priests, and mining operators back with you as soon as you've taken care of everything. Brannad, you come with me now. We're returning to first level immediately. We have a lot of work to do, so let's get started. Anything I can do to help, just call on me for it, Brannad Clav promised earnestly. And, Stranor, I want to apologize. I'll admit now that I ought to have followed your recommendations when this situation first developed. End of Part One